Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. Before we roll into this episode, just a few quick reminders. First of all, StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's the mothership. That's where you need to go for all of our podcast episodes, videos, blog posts, links out to our social media accounts, such as Facebook and Twitter. We are Blow the Mind on both of those. You'll also find us on Instagram and Tumblr. And always, if you want an easy way to help the podcast, the easiest way to go about that is to just rate and review us on whatever platform you use to listen to us, iTunes, Stitcher, whatever it is. Give us a rating and review, and that'll help the show. All right, Joe, what do we have today for the uh, listening audience? Well, today's going to be a follow-up episode to one we did pretty recently on the fascinating subject of aphantasia, the blindness of the mind's eye. Uh, So in that last episode, if you haven't listened to it yet, you should go back and check that one out first. That's where we lay all the groundwork. We explain what aphantasia is, how how it was discovered, and and what's the state of research today on this interesting condition. But... Brief summary, Robert, what is aphantasia? Well, we are essentially talking about blindness of the mind's eye. We're talking about the inability to varying degrees to form mental imagery in the mind. So this is affecting the way that you remember things, the way that you daydream about the future, the way you dream even. Uh, it really plays into your sensory experience of reality. Yeah, so in the last episode, we tried to give you a visual picture to put yourself in a scenario, tell a little story, and then see... How well can you picture all of the things in this imaginary scenario? And it turns out that some people can't picture these things at all. Yeah, because I think we were rolling out something. You're standing on a beach. Yeah. Uh, pale, deathly men in black coats and hats are wait, coming after you. Was that they're it? Floating. No, wait, that was Dark City. Oh, uh, well, that's a good thing. one, too. Yeah. But, yeah, we, we laid out this whole uh, mental imagery experience just to sort of test everyone. Then we talked about some other um, sort of questionnaires that have been rolled out as well to mm-hmm. sort of self-evaluate your own uh, place on the spectrum here. Yeah, and that is definitely one thing that came out in our discussion last time is that there really does seem to be a spectrum of the vividness of mental imagery. Mm-hmm. Some people are what we might call hyperphantasiacs, or they have hyperphantasia. They When they make a mental picture in their mind, they don't just have a vague kind of generic mental picture. They have a very detailed, incredibly clear mental picture. Uh, so if they picture a beach, they might not just see sand and water and the sky and maybe some seagulls, but they'll see uh, seven umbrellas, and these are the colors on the umbrellas, and there are 14 people on their beach. And then at the other end, we have the main subject of that episode, the, the people with aphantasia, meaning they can't picture a beach at all. There's no way for them to see it unless they're looking at it. Uh, and then, of course, there's this whole middle spectrum where people might have varying degrees of mental imagery. Like you can sort of see a generic beach, but not a lot of detail, or you can see a lot of detail uh, up and down the scale. Robert, I think we we both took the test and fell somewhere in the middle and sort of typical levels of mental imagery. Yeah, indeed. And, and that's one of the reasons we're doing this episode, one of the reasons we reached out to everybody, because... In talking about this, uh, you know, we're coming from the standpoint of sort of mid-level um, mental visionaries. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we definitely wanted to get the perspective from individuals that are, uh, you know, on either end of the spectrum. And it turns out lots of you out there have really interesting experiences with aphantasia or hyperphantasia, and lots of you got in touch with us. So we thought we'd take this episode to read some of the great responses that you sent back on this subject. So, uh, well, I mean, it makes sense, too, right? Because, what, it was like 2%, and this we don't ha- did not have any firm numbers on this, yeah. but the estimate is a little over 2% of the population has, uh, you know, notable degrees of aphantasia. Yeah, this was the that 2009 study we talked mm-hmm. about in the last episode. I believe it was by Faw, the psychologist Bill Faw, found that uh, two point something percent yeah. of the people in this survey seem to have uh, extremely low or no mental imagery. All right, so we're going to just jump into it now. We're going to set a we're going to set a timer for ourselves and say an hour. Yeah, it's about as, as long as we tend to like to go with the with the podcast episodes. So we're just going to see how many of them we can get out in an hour. If we don't get to yours, I apologize, but I guarantee you, we read all of them and we greatly appreciate the feedback. 
Okay, this first message is from our listener, Kyotai. So Kyotai says, Hey, so I saw you guys on Periscope last week. It was my first time tuning in, and what did you guys happen to start discussing but this condition I recently learned about called aphantasia. Y'all were trying to ask if people with aphantasia dreamed pictures. The answer is, well, I don't know about others, but I certainly do. One of the questions you asked in your podcast was about hallucinations. That's where we asked, you know, is it possible to hallucinate if you can't see things that aren't in front of your eyes? And Kyotai says, I also suffer from occasional hallucinations, which are very brief but very clear, maybe like twice a month, not very often. I'm able to easily tell the difference between them and reality because they usually have nothing to do with what I'm trying to do at the moment. I've been like this my whole life, and I just thought I wasn't good at remembering things. I couldn't visualize things, but I would just know the information. I'm very good with remembering numbers, though, and very good at recognizing patterns. I often wonder if it's because my head isn't cluttered up with pictures all the time. I wonder if there's Maybe anything so. to that. Because yeah. like, when it comes to getting around town, I'm... I'm the opposite. Like, I have no idea what the name of that street is <laughs> that I travel every day, but I I have it in my head, and yeah. I can drive to it, no problem. You're picturing the guy you saw who looked funny on the sidewalk the last time you went. Yeah, I remember him, but name of the street, number of the street, I yeah. have no idea. Uh, yeah, so Kyotai continues, uh, which isn't to say I don't see pictures at all, but they're ephemeral at best and very vague. So it sounds like maybe if uh, if Kyotai isn't completely aphantasic, mm-hmm. it might... Uh, might be very low on the visualization vividness spectrum. Right. Uh, so Kyotai continues, I've known that people don't process information the way I do for a while, but for the uh, but the first time I really understood was when my boyfriend was trying to teach me how to meditate. I hadn't thought about mm. meditation. Yeah, this is there is a lot of mental imagery in meditation, or there can be, yeah. Yeah, continuing, he asked me to visualize the color green and focus on it. And I tried. I really did. I was able to come up with a vague green in my head, but it quickly slipped away. I had a lot more luck with yoga because I was able to focus in on the music or my instructor's voice. I don't visualize my body when I'm doing yoga, but I am aware of where everything is when my eyes are closed. This it's is not, good because this is a point that I specifically brought up about yeah, yoga. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Continuing, it's not like a superpower or anything. I just know. And there, there's actually a scientific word for this. Uh, you, you might be aware of it. It's called proprioception. Yes, we had, there's an older episode of uh, Stuff to Blow Your Mind about this. Yeah, so proprioception is the reason why, hey, try a quick experiment. As long as you're not driving a car or something, close your eyes and then put your hands together. You can do it even though you can't see where your hands are, and this is because your sense of proprioception. It's this natural sense to be able to know where your different body parts are and their movement in relationship to one another, even without looking at them. Right. I mean, it's, just, it's how we move our bodies around in this world. Yeah, you like you don't always have to be looking at your feet in order to step. Mm-hmm. Pretty useful. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but anyway, continuing with the mail. I'm also an artist and a writer. This is interesting to me because some of these people with aphantasia reported that they can't draw at all, not even close. Right. Yeah. Or they had difficulty uh, trying to write out imagined scenarios, etc. Yeah, especially visual descriptions. Mm-hmm. Uh, but continuing with the letter... Art is hard because I don't ever have a clear picture of what I want to draw. I just keep doodling until I've created something I like. (laughs) Writing is easier. The words just come to me. I feel like I can tap more into how something makes you feel rather than worrying about how something looks. The biggest downside is not being able to picture faces. I can sometimes get an image or uh, of a place or a scene sometimes, but I've never been able to picture faces. It makes me sad because I've just recently married my boyfriend and people ask me about my husband. I have to give them a general description or dig out my pictures to show them. I mean, I know him. He has a beard, dark skin, beautiful brown eyes, but I can't see it in my head. I know my family and friends, but I can't see them either. Hmm. Sorry to end on a glum note. Anyhow, thanks for doing the podcast. It made me feel not so alone to know there are other people like this. I think I'll check out those forums you mentioned. We mentioned some Aphantasia forums in the last episode. P.S. Okay, I do have one bone to pick with you. In both Periscope and the podcast, you were very careful to state that these people, quote, claimed to have aphantasia. Almost any time it was brought up and people ha- uh, about people having it, the word claimed was also present. What gives? Is it because there's no way to prove if someone has it or because of a lack of understanding? Am I looking too far into this? Just wondering. I can't imagine anyone pretending to have aphantasia. I mean, what's the point? I hope you guys have a great day and thanks 
things for reading. Well, I can address the, why we say claimed. That's just talking about uh, how you would deal with first-person experience in science. Yeah. Like, there, there's no way to know what, what somebody else's first-person experience really is. So you just talk about what they claim yeah. to experience. That's the only way you can deal with it. It's not because we're being skeptical and saying all these people are lying about what they experience. It's just trying to reflect the reality of the data we have to work with. We can't be in their heads. We can only talk mm-hmm. about what they claim to experience. Yeah, exactly. Anyway, thanks for that great email, Kyotai. That, that was really interesting to read. So, Robert, let, let's have another one. All right. This is one from uh, Facebook. This is a far shorter uh, um, response, but uh, it has a nugget in here that I think is very tantalizing. Uh, Maureen wrote in and said, I think I have this. I can't visualize things either. Visualization is a strategy that I am supposed to teach kids who have trouble with comprehension, but I am not very good at this, and now I think it is because I have a Fantasia mind blown. This uh, This really fascinated me because it it, it it underlines this idea that okay we have all we're only talking about you know two percent of individuals probably that have a fantasia yeah uh, so the vast uh, majority of individuals that are con- contributing to uh, curriculums to teaching strategies they are individuals that have uh, more or less an average uh, mental visualization uh, system in place yeah so then what's happening when uh, you know when you have individuals that are being taught or individuals that are teachers who are having to engage with the same curriculum and use the same curriculum to teach yeah, this this makes me think about all kinds of different things about the the way our society is structured based on the mistaken assumption that most people have a roughly equivalent powers of mental imagery. Mm-hmm. Like another way this comes across is in the justice system. Yeah, and the use of one. like the use of eyewitness testimony in the justice system. I feel like uh, hopefully people know that there's a spectrum of vividness of mental imagery and visual recall. But I bet there are a lot of cases where there is there are serious problems in the justice system and the use of eyewitness testimony because people are just assuming that everyone out there has just as good visual recall and mental imagery as they do. And that's not necessarily the case. Yeah. This on top of, of course, all the inherent memory problems with eyewitness testimony, as well as the ability to manipulate those memories if you're the one asking the question. So, yeah, we can add aphantasia into that uh, into that whole cauldron of problems as well. Man, I just never read a single thing about eyewitness testimony that makes me more trustworthy of it. <laughs> Every single piece of science or data I come across just undermines it more. Yeah, I mean, it just seems like the label should be you know used, but used with caution and used with the understanding that this is not this is not video camera HD footage. This yeah. is this is a flawed memory that is susceptible to. Uh, manipulation, alteration, and uh, it might not be that even reliable to begin with. Yeah, yet another uh, case for augmenting our bodies with video cameras where our eyes are, so that- we can just press record on everything <laughs> that's important. That's that's all I'm arguing for, Joe. Do you want to do another one, Robert? Yeah, let me grab one here. All right, this one is from Emily. She says, long-time listener, first-time caller, smiley face. I just listened to your podcast on Aphantasia. Uh, it caught my ear because a friend had recently posted about this phenomenon on Facebook. She doesn't see mental images and was doing a survey of her friends. I don't see mental images either. Until I listened to your podcast, I didn't realize people actually see things. I thought when people talk about picturing things in their mind, it was just a figure of speech. I didn't realize there was actually a picture. Mind equals blown. Emily, this is uh yeah this is interesting. It's the the, the uh, we I think we touched a little bit on this in the original episode, like people yeah. hearing about this and just not really understanding what what people were talking about. Yeah, this is something we've heard. So we heard it in the original episode when we were doing research. Uh, mm-hmm. Like for example, that uh, essay by Blake Ross about what it's like to right. discover a fantasia, where he reports that he didn't realize other people could see mental images. Uh, and we heard this from a bunch of listeners. A lot of you who got in touch with us said you had the exact same experience. You, you just had no idea this was even a thing other people could do. But another way this parallels the Blake Ross essay is that uh, he also did the same thing where when he found out about it, he went online and started surveying all his friends and, mm-hmm. you know, trying to get in touch with them saying, wait a minute, you see something that's not there? Like you can see it? Uh, <laughs> and, and quizzing all the people he knew. And it turns out he, he got in touch with some people he knew who were were also uh, experiencing aphantasia, and it looks like Emily's friend did as well. In yeah. Emily, um, I I have a friend whose coworker has this, and I found this interesting. Apparently, he describes 
his memory of people. Like when, when he thinks of someone, it's like pulling up a Wikipedia page about that person. Huh. Which is a, an interesting way to describe it. There's a lot of, that's one of the things that's so tantalizing about this, this topic is that, uh, you, you ultimately have the, each side trying to relate what their experience, their memory experience is like mm-hmm. in each dealing with a slightly different system. All right, now here's another one. This one comes to us from Olaf in Sweden. It says, hi, my name is Olaf, and I'm a 29-year-old man from Sweden. When I was in my early 20s, me and a friend played the Would You Rather game and came to the question, Would You Rather Be Blind or Deaf? I said blind in a second, and my friend asked me why, because he thought it was strange. And I said, well, I store all of my information vocally in my head, so my sight is useless in that way. Then I thought... If you're born deaf and never heard a spoken word in your life, in which language do you think? Uh, my friend replied, you don't. You picture it. That blew my mind because I had never had pictures in my mind before. I have a constant thought process in which I have an ongoing inner conversation with myself where I sort out and store information. Like if someone tells me, remember that time last summer when we had watermelons for dinner? <laughs> it was certainly memorable. Remember that time, Robert? <laughs> yes. I first think about watermelons, what they are, a fruit, then the color green, and how they taste. And after that, I can remind myself of conversations I remember bound to the taste of watermelons. Then based on the lingo of the conversation, I now repeat in my head, I can determine who I was speaking with at the time. Then I remember which time uh, they are talking about. So if I have to recall something, I always ask, what were we talking about rather than uh, was it sunny? Thanks for the great podcast and keep up the great work, Olaf. Uh, thanks for that message, Olaf. <laughs> so I, I don't recall ever having watermelons from for dinner, but I can actually relate here because I, I sometimes do this. Oh yeah, I'm obviously I, I don't have aphantasia, but I often try to place memories by trying to remember what we were talking about at the time. And I'm sure that comes off as rather weird to people who are more visual, trying to remember what people were wearing or what, uh, you know, what the weather was like that day. That those aren't typically things I store as much. So maybe right. I'm lower on the on the mental vividness uh, scale. Mm-hmm. And of course, this isn't a get, even getting into again the whole complex nature of memory, where sometimes we have these clear memories of what we were wearing, what we were doing, especially when really important things happened. Mm-hmm. And those memories are not all that reliable either. Sometimes the brain just kind of goes ahead and just colors that scenario, and you tuck that mental image away in your mind, and it might not even be all that accurate. Yeah, what happened that night? Well, we were eating watermelons for dinner. Yeah. Uh, no, another thing <laughs> that Olaf says that's interesting is that he, he talks about having this internal conversation with him with his, himself. Yeah. And this is another thing that we came across r- reading for the previous episode, where it, sometimes people report this, that instead of picturing the thing they're about to do, they have a conversation mentally about what they're about to do. Mm-hmm. So I don't picture walking to the kitchen, going to get a glass of water. I say, what am I going to do now? I'm going to go to the kitchen. And when I'm there, I'm going to get a glass of water. Okay, let's do it. <laughs> okay, this next email is from our listener, Louisa, called another aphantasiac person. Louisa says, Hello, guys. I really love the podcast, and when I saw the topic for this week's one, I knew it would be weird and exciting. I found out that I was a fantasiac. I prefer a fantastic. Actually, I don't, I'm not sure what the proper word is. I would assume based on the, the way the word is structured, if you have a fantasia, you're an a fantasiac. Uh, but, uh, I hope that doesn't come off as sounding like you're a maniac. Yeah, a fantasiac, it does kind of sound like, like disturb people <laughs> who would attack and say like a blue sunshine type of exploitation film. Well, that is a great film, but please don't take it that way. Yeah. Uh, but maybe we can go with a fantastic. That's a nice one. Louisa. I like it. Uh, anyway, she continues. Uh, when the study started to be reported by the media and science blogs, I was one of the people who were like, wait, you guys mean you literally see things. So yet again, this experience as a child, I got bored when I was supposed to imagine things like counting sheep, and I just thought it was something that grown-ups found entertaining but I had no interest in, like instrumental music and newspapers. <laughs> Years passed, and I guess I just never thought much about it. When I found out I was different, I felt immensely sad. It seems to be a very exciting thing to be missing out. 
My grandfather passed away last year, and I need pictures to remember him by. Of course, I know who he is, and I can describe him in detail, but I cannot for the life of me picture him at all. It feels really unfair that I cannot see him when people can do that easily, even if they weren't as close to him as I was. It's weird that you guys can't imagine what it's like to not be able to picture things. It's a lot harder for me to try to imagine what it is like to picture things. I guess it's hard either way. Huh? Yeah, that's I mean, that's the crazy thing. That's like we're, we're each on a different side of this stream. Uh, I mean, some people are kind of stand, straddling it a little bit, but yeah. we're just trying to relate what the view's like from our side. Well, one listener on Facebook pointed out, uh, hey, you know, it, it's uh, it's difficult to imagine things. What about trying to imagine being actually blind instead of blind yeah. in the mind's eye? And I thought, well, obviously, it's not. We can't simulate what it's like to be blind your whole life or to have that whole experience of blindness. But you can sort of temporarily, roughly simulate it just by closing your eyes. Mm-hmm. You know, you can know what it's like to try to navigate surroundings without being able to see anything. But you can't close your mind's eye, or at least I can't. I, I, I find it literally impossible not to picture mental images on command. Yeah, like even when I shut, if I'm able to shut down deliberate mental images, you know, I'm still going to have sort of spontaneous mental images. Yeah. Be it something related to the default mode network, uh, you know, stuff in the past, thinking about the future. If I even shut all that out, then I'm still going to get sort of like random, like meditation, shavasana imagery in my head. Yeah. I, I find that if I try to just say, okay, picture nothing, don't picture anything, just blackness, nothing. My mind starts going to that scene in Ghostbusters, yes, where and, and, and then I end up picturing the Ghostbusters, and I picture Dan Aykroyd, and I picture the Stay, Pu- Stay Puft Marshmallow Man. Oh man! So, so basically, if all of the Ghostbusters had been aphantasic and aphantasiacs, Gozer would not have had a leg to stand on. That's they true. could not have pictured something to, to for the, for the Destroyer to uh, to incarnate itself. He as. would have been thwarted. That's yeah. why you should you should always hire aphantasiacs for oh your ghost God. fighting purposes. This is so good. This is so good. I'm almost tempted to remove it from the episode so that we can exploit it. Uh, <laughs> may, maybe we can maybe we can write something up for uh, House of Works now about this. Okay, that's a good idea. Anyway, we should continue with uh, Luisa's email. So she says. I used to explain it as like having a smell bring back memories. The information on the smell memory is there, and it's easily recognizable once you smell that again. But it's impossible to conjecture a smell in your head. Actually, Louisa, I don't know if I agree with that. I I can imagine what smells smell like. Can can you, Robert, can you smell something that you're not currently smelling? Like the smell of onion sautéing in a pan, I can just... I can sort of mentally smell that right now. A little bit. I know I have found that I can do this better. Like I can, there, there have been certain situations and places in the right um, arrangement of, um, of things to where I can imagine taste and smell better. Mm -hmm. If that makes sense with my vague description of it. Um, But for the most part, it's like, I kind of have to strain for it. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Huh. Well, yeah. So clearly here, there, this is yet another thing where there is variable experience on what you can create mentally, the, the mental sensory experience. Uh, Louisa is obviously having a different experience from, from me and from you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, actually, and she anticipates me. I should have remembered this. She says, but maybe people are able to do that also, and it's another sense I can't bring by myself. Is it? So for me, visual data is there. I can describe things as you could with a smell, but I am not visualizing the things I'm describing. I just know what the description is. This is consistent with a lot of what we read. Mm-hmm. Uh, I am a fantasiac with sounds as well. If I try to imagine a dog bark, I can hear my own voice barking. Oh, I but, love this part. But never an actual dog. That's fantastic. Mm-hmm. I love it. Earworms are me singing the songs and all the noise. I can only imagine them if I can make them. I'm the worst with impressions and accents. Can't do anything. I wonder if I can't do impressions because I can't imagine them or I can't imagine them because I can't do them. That, yeah, that's interesting because there, I feel like when I do, if I do an impersonation, even if I fail miserably to do one, uh-huh. um, like I'm still very much like Donald Trump, for instance. I don't have a good Donald Donald Trump impersonation, uh-huh. but one cannot help but want to do one, <laughs> given how much Trump we're exposed to in the media right now. Uh-huh. So even when I try, the mental image of Trump enters my mind, and and I essentially try and blow that 
out into a, a full possession of my body. But you can't do the voice. No. Oh. It's not, not, it'd be, you know, it just becomes also a bad Australian accent or something, and then I feel bad about myself and stop. <laughs> uh, anyway, Louisa goes on, I do dream very vividly. Uh, we, we heard a lot of different stuff about dreams with this mm-hmm. question. Some, some dream, some don't. Uh, she says, I was told that seeing with your mind's eye is not like dreaming, though. I don't know if I can hallucinate as I never did those kind of drugs. Though, of course, you don't have to do drugs to hallucinate, but that, that is one way that a person without a natural tendency to hallucinate can get there. Right. Uh, anyway, Louisa goes on to say, thank you for an amazing podcast. I was able to understand a little more about me, even if, even if it always makes me sad for the things I'm missing. If you have any questions about it, feel free to ask. I'll gladly explain. This is Louisa in Brazil. Well, thank you for that awesome email, Louisa. Yeah, that, that was, was great. great. All right, Robert, you got another one for us? Yeah, this one uh, kind of relates to what we were just talking about because it gets into smell. Uh, Carolyn wrote in and um, she says, I never thought I would email a podcast, but your recent show on Aphantasia inspired me to write in. You asked what it would be like to imagine things without the mind's eye. I never thought it was possible to see anything in my mind outside of a dream. For me, it's like having that memory of seeing the picture when you look at an object and then afterwards can remember what it looked like. Also, perhaps to compensate for the lack of images, I can, if I concentrate hard enough, feel and hear and faintly smell something imagined. Of these three, it is easiest for me to feel something imagined. For example, I once imagined I was laying on a patch of grass in the sun. I could feel the grass and the ground underneath me and the warmth of the sun and even the position I was laying. I also had a sense of how I had gotten there and the wider imaginary world I had created. It was like... I jumped into the scene just after I had laid down and closed my eyes, but I could not open my eyes to see if there were any clouds in the sky. That's about as vivid as my imagined sense can get. If I concentrate, I can even imagine a faint smell, but have never tried to imagine a taste. Most of the time, my imagination consists of words, like I am reading a book in real time as I write it. Also, as I travel through my imagined worlds, I do so in first person, so I can imagine moving through the world either as myself or as the main character, so I can experience the the other senses faintly as if remembering something experienced before. I always look forward to your next episode. Thanks, Carolyn. Well, yeah, well, thanks for writing in. That's, uh, again, just another interesting perspective on how how you experience and remember the world uh-huh. and imagine the world, really, with less of an, uh, an emphasis on visual imagery. Now, Robert, you were saying you, you had some difficulty trying to mentally smell something, like right. mentally imagine a smell. What about what about feel and, and, and uh, taste and... Well, taste, taste, touch, and hearing. Yeah, well, taste definitely uh, goes into what I, I the example that I, I mentioned uh, yeah. earlier, like taste and smell. I feel like are the same as far as feel goes. Yeah, feels difficult for me too. Yeah, you, you so you can't imagine the feeling of say petting a cat, like feeling its fur. You can't you can't feel that in your mind. I can, but I'm more likely to describe it in my mind. Like I'm thinking of like like if I'm touching a cat or. You know, or, or, you know, my, my son's cheek or something. Like I can think, oh, well, that's soft and that's smooth. And I can visualize myself doing it. But in terms of like feeling it, that like I'm really struggling to, to have that kind of a memory. What about taking a rotten piece of fruit, smashing it into your face and smearing it all over your skin? Well, that's a fantastic uh, visual image you just created. And that's, but you can't feel the fruit? No. No. Weird. Yeah. I can feel that. I can feel what that would feel like. Yeah. This, I, I hadn't really thought about any of this before, but. I, that example comes up because we have a coworker who sits between Robert and I who has had the same piece of fruit rotting on their desk for months. Yes. It's it's quite, in a way, it's kind of beautiful and, and very goth. Yeah. Uh, so. It is like turned into a water balloon of, of fragrance. <laughs> and worms. And worms. A water balloon of worms. All right. What uh, I should imagine, we should probably take a quick break here, and when we come back. We will explore some more listener mail related to a Fantasia. All right, we're back. What do we have next? Uh, well, I'm going to read one from Nelson called "Gained a Fantasia Story." So, uh, one of the reasons that we that we know about a Fantasia now, one of the reasons it's been written about in the media lately, is because of a story of acquired a Fantasia, a guy who 
was uh, an, an older guy who got a coronary angioplasty, which mm-hmm. is a you know, routine medical procedure to widen an artery. And after this experience, he suddenly had lost his ability to make mental pictures. It's almost kind of he's almost kind of like the Rosetta Stone of this uh, this scenario and this ability, this attempt to translate these experiences from one uh, type of person to the other. Yeah, and so of course after this story, a lot of people started uh, getting in contact with the uh, with researchers in this area and saying, "Hey, look, I I've got aphantasia and I've had it my whole life." And so we we have been mostly talking about people who have always had aphantasia, but this is a note from a listener who acquired it. So Nelson writes, Hey guys, long-time listener to the podcast while I work. I've never had a reason to write in until now with a personal story about how I, for a lack of a better word, gained aphantasia and what it's like. I know that I've not always been unable to picture images in my mind because I remember waking up with night terrors when I was young, particularly to a dream of my backyard. A farmer who I didn't recognize would be standing there with a straw hat and a pitchfork as a volcano grew out of the ground and killed us all. It always seemed incredibly vivid, and I would wake most nights screaming from it. This lasted until I was about six years old when I was in an accident. I rolled out of bed one night over the top of it, not the side and landed on a metal AC intake vent, causing a concussion and multiple lacerations requiring over 20 stitches. When they put me under anesthetic, I had a hallucination that I still remember all of the details to, but when I awoke, things in my head just seemed different. I couldn't picture things like I once was able to. I remember things just as well as everyone else, but not in the same way. When I go to sleep, I no longer dream in the way I remember dreaming either. Now all of my dreams to this day are like reading a book is to me. I know the events that are happening and the general makeup of the setting, but I see, smell, and feel nothing. But I can hear what's going on. Even so, it still feels completely real like it is happening to me. That's fascinating. So, like, he's... He he gets lost in the dream. Like, I can't imagine what this is like either, being able to get lost in an experience and feel like it's really happening, but not picture anything. Yeah. Uh, anyway, Nelson continues, uh, but to the final point I wanted to make, both of you ask questions about what really is going on in the mind of someone with aphantasia, and the best way I've found to relate it to someone who doesn't have it is like if you were physically watching a D&D board <laughs> as the game is played. Uh, Dungeons & Dragons reference, mm-hmm. of course. Uh, there's a large area, and you know where everything is in relation to other objects, and there's description playing in your head of exactly what is happening, but you don't actually see the die-cut token picking up a potion. You just know it's happening. Oh, my goodness. This makes me want to now question all of my the players in my Dungeons & Dragons campaign and find out if they're aphantasics or not, yeah. because that... <laughs> That because I have this idea, I just kind of assume yes, they are having, having the exact same visualization experience as I am as we lay out this collective storytelling uh, world, but probably not. I mean, even if none of them are, are aphantasiacs, uh, we're all going to be somewhere slightly different on the spectrum. Huh? Yeah, well, it makes you wonder if you could play if you could play D and D with no visual aids whatsoever. Like just all sitting around, just people talking yeah. through a D and D game with no with no writing materials, no maps. Oh, that's interesting. Now, because I've, I've never been involved in a game where there's absolutely nothing, mm-hmm. but I feel like the like some of the earlier games that I was involved with, we we didn't even we didn't really have much in the way of maps drawn out. It was more of hey you are here what are you doing and maybe maybe that they were also playing uh, a little uh, fast and loose with the rules to facilitate that yeah but uh, but cares it could about be the rules? yeah but it could be that the dm uh which was like an older kid um as in my as I was in boy scouts with maybe he was just a you know higher level on the visualization end of the spectrum yeah and just assumed that we all were too and that surely you don't need figurines or maps because i'm explaining it to you and your mind is there yeah i might as well play a video for you yeah wow hmm. interesting. interesting yeah uh, well anyway thank you very much for getting in touch nelson all right this next one comes to us from chris uh chris is a longtime listener he points out that he's been listening since the stuff from the science lab days 
So thanks for uh, hanging in there uh, all this time, Chris. He says, your podcast was an awakening. I never knew that it was a normal thing to be able to picture images in your mind. The only thing I can picture in my mind is the faint white outline of basic, perfect geometric pet shapes on the blackness that is my inner eyelid. <laughs> wow. <laughs> That's very specific. Yeah. I have to have my eyes closed for that. I can dream and my dreams have pictures, but I cannot remember any detail about my dreams moments after I wake up, so I cannot describe them more. My memories of things and places are like facts, not videos. I cannot replay a memory, but I can recount the memory in bullet points. This happened, then that happened, etc. This may explain how it is so easy for me to misplace things, as only important details are remembered. This may not be related because even visual people lose things. My thinking is not visual, and I don't have a monologue running in my head. I can think in words, but mainly my thoughts are in ideas, and these can be translated into words. I can translate them into pictures as well, but only if I am drawing or making something. What is interesting about this is that I am a very creative person, visually and otherwise. I draw not as often or as skillfully as I wish I could, I write and I cook. My writing is, as I've said before, not directly out of my mind, but translated from ideas into words. Sometimes the ideas flow, and I don't consciously have to come up with the words, but there are definitely times where I need a gap to find the right word. It's like translating from one language to another, but one language is English, and the other is conceptual. Hmm. Communication is definitely my weakness, and I have spent much time working to improve my communication skills, and most of that is the translation from ideas into words. And I cook. And by that, I mean I am going to school for culinary arts and baking and pastry. In uh, culinary and baking, you need to plate food to make it look appetizing. Whenever I plate up food, I know that there is a certain way I want it to look, but I don't know what it is going to look like. (laughs) Whenever I take a photo of my food or something else, I know what I want before I pick up my camera, but I can't describe it. I could recognize it, but I can't visualize it at all. This is this really uh, fascinated me, especially. I mean, I, this is something that comes up a lot for me just at work here, because I'll we'll, we'll publish a, a podcast episode, and uh, and generally I, I I'm the one who ends up uh, looking up some artwork for it, and and I really enjoy doing that. Robert is really good at this, by oh, the way. Oh well, well, thank you. But I have, but sometimes I get into trouble because I have a. If not a very clear idea of the image I want, I'll have a, a very definite idea for what I want. And it will be very hard to shake that, even if the options in, say, Getty Images are, are less than forthcoming. And additionally, uh, Joe, you, uh, Christian, and myself have been engaged uh, with uh, Greg, um, uh, another one of our coworkers here, in creating uh, a new logo for Stuff to Blow Your Mind. So now I can't help but... But think about that process in terms of of three, actually four individuals with different approaches to visual, uh, to mental visualization, trying to come up with the same visual um, summary of the brand. Yeah, absolutely. I again, this is one area where sometimes I do wonder. I mean, obviously, I like I said, I'm in the typical range of the spectrum, but I wonder if I'm kind of low on the typical range because yeah. I. I, I have a hard time picturing what I want for, for say, like a logo. I feel like I'm better at This has got to be so annoying to you uh, graphic design folks out there. But I'm the kind of person who I know what I don't want once I see it. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm that guy. But I feel like that's as far as I can go. Mm-hmm. That relates back to our P uh, equals NP episode, too, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is like uh, the, the, the NP problem, the yeah. NP problem of uh, visualization. Like, I can't <laughs> I can't put it together in my mind, but I can check the answer once I see it and know if it's right or wrong. One more question that came out of this based on uh, what Chris was having to say about how his memory works, like the ability to replay a memory versus being able to recount the memory in bullet points or facts I would love to see a study on who has more accurate factual recall of an event. Somebody who has visual recall of the event or uh, somebody who has a fantasia and just remembers it as a series of facts. And the obvious 
conclusion would be, well, somebody who has visual recall has better recall. But I mm-hmm. don't know if I would go along with that assumption. Uh, I wonder if there's more confabulation going on in memory when you're picturing what you're remembering because you're just throwing in visual details that may or may not have been something you actually saw, and that's cluttering up your perception of what the event was. Huh. Yeah. I, I think it's entirely possible that uh, somebody with aphantasia might better remember just factual details about something that happened. Yeah. It, in a way, it's kind of like you know you watch a TV show, and there's there's one department that's dealing with the set, Another is dealing with props that people touch. And then, of uh-huh. course, the actors are doing their own thing and they're going off the writing, et cetera. So in a way, it's like we it's like having a set designer who is a little out of step with everything else and then might just throw something in that makes absolutely no sense uh-huh. and uh, and has nothing to do with what the prop person or the actors or the writers are putting together. Like like that's a little bit what it's like Um you know, to to have uh, to to work with a visual memory, yeah. you have no you have no idea what weird visual clues are going to be thrown in into, into that very malleable memory of what sort of happened. Yeah, and it's like you feel like you should have a sense of what the the falsified elements are, but you don't. They yeah. feel as real to you as the real elements. Yeah, and there have been studies to prove this out. And one of the more uh, interesting ones that had to do with uh, people's memories of nine uh, eleven, like oh, where yeah. they were and what they were wearing. Um, fascinating stuff, and they're wrong about most of it. Yeah, because essentially, in the, and I, you know, I don't have all the details in front of me, but like one of the the basic summary of what's happening is the brain is focused on something really important, and uh-huh. you know, I know essentially getting down to some survival uh, you know, programming. Yeah, and the visualization is like this isn't important, so trust me, you were in a red shirt, you were eating Captain Crunch. Yeah, non essential details, it just lies to you. Yeah, let whatever. me just fill you in because the precise visuals uh, of of your cereal. And your shirt do not matter in this scenario. Yeah. But you probably can remember what escape route you were planning on thinking of from the building you were in or something yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Hey, so it looks like we need to take a quick break, but we will be right back after hearing from the sponsor of this episode. Okay, here's another email from our listener, LJ. LJ says, I've been reading a lot about aphantasia ever since the New York Times article on it earlier this year. Count me as one of those people who never realized that the mind's eye was anything more than a metaphor. Yet again, we're hearing this. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've always known I wasn't a visual learner. While I'm a strong reader, I learned best by kinesthetically doing something, and then I can refer back to written instructions and pictures to remind myself of a specific detail. Learn something like Tai Chi from a video? Yeah, not a chance. (laughs) That requires you to take in the visual details and flip them in your mind and then apply them to your own body. Too much translation. Same thing with reading a map. I'm hopeless with directions and am essentially dependent on my GPS even to find my way to familiar places. I'm a physical therapist by training and never had any problems in diagnosing or treating my patients, especially when I could use my hands to do the work. My biggest problem was trying to draw stick figure exercises for them. (laughs) That's great. Um, Now I write fiction, and when I was a new writer, I used to have critique partners tell me I wrote floating heads in black boxes. It never occurred to me to spend time on visual description. Like the author you talk about, I skipped over long, rambling descriptions in books. They were meaningless to me. For example, epic fantasy tends to spend pages and pages describing setting. Okay, I get it. It's a tree. I have the concept of treeness firmly in my head. Can we please move on? Yeah. I, I Again, I can't really imagine what it's like to read this way. Well, the one thing that... that- the one thing that I can I can say that relates to this, and I, I may have mentioned this before, but if you're ever, ever reading a book and you get a pretty firm idea of what that uh, the main character or secondary character looks like, maybe you're you know they, they kind of form out of nothing. Maybe they're you end up throwing in an actor or someone you know. Right. But you get a firm idea, and then yeah. you're like thirty pages into the book, and the author mentions that they have a mustache. Yeah, they start <laughs> describing, and, and you're, you're like, like no, 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 stop. Yeah, the no. boat has sailed. He had a, this character has no mustache. They have no pony. Right. You can't throw that in 30 pages. This is a clean-shaven Danny DeVito. You can't do this to me. Yeah, so I can imagine someone saying, all right, we get it, George. We know what the, they're eating dinner. We yeah. got it. Just tell me about the um, the dynastic succession here. Oh, okay, yeah, I can get it. 
All right, so LJ continues. I have no problem being imaginative and capturing these stories and characters that I create, and I've learned to layer in visual description because most people are reliant on them. One of my strengths in writing is dialogue and creating characterization through character interactions. I think I'm one of those people who can get flickers of occasional visual images, but not volitionally. And the harder I concentrate on a visual image, the more it slips away. If you ask me to close my eyes and describe my husband of 27 plus years, I can tell you he has brown eyes, an oval face, brown hair, a beard and a mustache, but I don't see those things. They're just part of the package that is him in my mind. My husband is a hyper-visual spatial person. Over the years, we have had situations where he will remember something vividly, describe it to me, but I will have no memory of it until we're back in the place it occurred, or with the people he's referencing, uh, and the memory can come flooding back. It's as if I need a proximity trigger. I don't feel as if I have any sort of disability. I'm just glad to know that others have the same perceptual style as I do, and knowing how my mind works allows me to compensate in situations that require strong visual skills. I enjoy your show very much. Uh, best regards, LJ. Well, thanks for that email, LJ. And I, I like the part you have about uh, whether or not you consider it a disability. Obviously, you don't. And I think that's something that we came across in, in some of the other uh, reading that we did on this. So, some people feel sort of at a loss mm-hmm. because of this condition, and other people don't. Yeah. And I wonder what triggers that. Like, So if you can't create mental images, what's the difference between feeling like you are uh, suffering because of this condition versus feeling like it's no big deal, this is just how your mind works? Yeah, I mean, it, I, I feel like the, the real take-home is that, that everyone has a slightly different uh, suite of sensory um, memories and sensory visual uh, manifestations in the mind, you know. Yeah. Um, and it's you know it's hard to say whether one is better than the other. Like yeah. like for instance, I mean me, I might have you know slightly or a little better visual memory than some people, but there might be people listening to this that might think it's awful that I can't actually like like that my memory of say you know rubbing my son's uh, head is more descriptive and visual it's more linguistic and visual as opposed to anything approaching like actual just sensory memory like i have even trouble imagining what that would be like yeah you can't <laughs> imagine the feeling of plunging your face into a pie oh uh, not really no <laughs> <laughs> what a what a what a sad day uh. Whoa, what's that? No. Why, it's Carney. Oh, no. I see Carney's feeling left out because we've been reading listener mail without you, Carney. Well, Carney, see, the issue is this is not a full-blown listener mail episode. This is very specifically in response to one episode we did a couple weeks ago. So we weren't trying to hurt your feelings. Uh, we, we just, we just had to get on with it. And, and frankly, we couldn't find you this morning when we were yeah, looking I for you. Where you were. But, oh, but you well, have one for it? Okay. Well, covered in rotten fruit, so that <laughs> makes me think you may have been dumpster diving or something. Hmm. All right. Well, we'll read this one. Let's see what do you have here for us, Carney. Uh, this is one from the website that was left on StuffToBlowYourMind.com. Uh, Steph writes in and says, How to experience aphantasia. <laughs> Having completed an eight-week Evelyn Wood course in speed reading in the late 1970s, my class was given a small book of fiction to read called The Pearl. In less than 25 minutes, the entire volume was consumed cover to cover. When finished, everyone else looked distressed. Not only had speed reading prevented them from experiencing the book visually, like watching a movie, they didn't even seem to have much conscious memory at all of the course of the story. They were astonished, however, to discover, as the teacher began quizzing them, that they could still answer questions about many of the book's specifics. One woman asked whether she could go back to reading the old way that she enjoyed, more than a little frightened that she had exchanged one form of reading permanently for another. Oh, that is scary. For my own part, there had been nothing to lose. I had never experienced their word movies. I assumed (laughs) because of dyslexia as well as blind sight in my right eye uh, that I had learned somehow as a child to only store my understanding audibly. Thus, I could easily read aloud very well, taking in whole paragraphs and using context to correctly guess the identities of garbled spellings and squished margins before concentrating on knowing slash speaking each word aloud. Speed reading only seemed to slightly improve my ability to skim nothing more. 
You know, actually, the most interesting part of this comment to me isn't about the aphantasia, but about the classmate who is afraid that she had permanently <laughs> exchanged methods of reading. I wonder if it's possible to do something like that. I mean, I mean I, I've had this experience before of uh, trying to read fiction too too quickly mm-hmm. and then feeling sad about it. I haven't really had this much since since I was in school and like uh-huh. I'd been assigned a novel to read or something and I'm like, oh, I got this read by tomorrow, better finish it tonight. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I I just remember thinking like, man, this is just not a way to read a novel. Oh, man, I have not experienced this in a, a while, but I'm curious if, if you've ever experienced this or any readers have, but there have been times where I'm um, like I'm, I'm heavily into, into reading a particular book and I have a certain set visual feel for that book. Like the, the visual universe of that book is, is, is pretty consistent. Uh-huh. But then I'll do something like watch a Miyazaki film one night or some other animated film. And then when I go and try and read the book, suddenly everything is animated. Everything is in an illustrative mode. Everything resembles the look and feel of the animated picture I just saw. Yeah. And I, and I have at times like put down the book and said, I'm just going to wait till tomorrow because I am not going to engage in this world with a different visual uh, motif. Yeah, uh, that's entirely informed by the film I just consumed. It's almost like by watching the film, you've taken a drug that alters your uh, your imagery, your yeah. alters your visual processing, and and puts you in a state of mind where you're unable to experience the book as you normally would. Yeah, and maybe I mean I've never experienced that with with. Uh, with non-animated films, maybe it works to to smaller degrees. But uh, you know, like maybe if you watch a Kubrick film and then read your book, maybe the book is going to be more uh, Kubrick-esque. Mm-hmm. But uh, but it may, maybe it's just more pronounced with something like Miyazaki. But I don't know. Uh, I wonder if the same thing could happen with uh, with like video games. Do you ever oh, like yeah. uh, you, like you're reading a book and then there's a video game you play that's a little too close in subject matter to what's going on in the book or something like that? Like you end up you're reading Dracula, but you you see all of it as Castlevania too. Exactly. Well, <laughs> the more recent example I'm thinking of is like what if you're reading Cormac McCarthy's The Road and then uh-huh. you start playing The Last of Us on PlayStation? Oh, yeah. In kind of similar worlds and stories, and you start picturing getting the the visual, uh, the visual imagination all garbled up. Yeah, I mean that comes back to something we discussed in the first episode. So oftentimes, the um, the visual experience we have reading a book is so strong that we we don't even want to entertain the idea of a film adaptation. Yeah, uh, don't want to yeah. look at it. Yeah, because that is not it. That is not the thing that was in my head. It's a it's a clean shaven Danny DeVito, and if I have to see <laughs> otherwise, I'm going to kick somebody in the face. <laughs> All right. Well, it looks like that's all that we have time for today. But uh, and we unfortunately weren't able to get to all of your excellent emails. But uh, but thank you so much for sending those in. We, we like I said, we do read all of them, and and they were fantastic. And we really loved hearing back from you. It was it was a treat. Yeah, and we we just knew that there was so much material here. We just wanted to go ahead and get it out before we do one of our more regularly scheduled three host listener mail episodes because we didn't want to clog one of those up entirely with aphantasia and we wanted to get these out closer to the original publication date yes absolutely but hey one more thing we're going to do we should put in our landing page for this episode on Mm -hmm. the website the contact information if you want to get in touch with that researcher we talked about in the previous episode adam zaman who uh, has been collecting people who experience aphantasia for his research so uh, so we'll help put you in touch there if you are interested in being part of that indeed all right, so once again, if you want to get in touch with us, head on over to StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's the mothership. That's where you'll find all of our content, including all of the episodes, with landing pages that include links to related content and some outside resources as well. And, of course, if you want to get in touch with us about this or any other episode we've done recently, you can email us at BlowTheMindAtHowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.